Joseph Haydn was a great composer, musician, conductor. He was not as well known, or at least today is not, as Mozart, Beethoven, and others, but perhaps he should have been. He was a tutor of Beethoven and a friend and mentor to Mozart. Perhaps the reason that you don't see him as much kind of in the musical world is because he's, uh, he's Haydn. Richard, I told you nobody would laugh. Come on, man. But the story is told that the last performance Haydn ever attended was on March 27, 1808, just about a year before he died. It was where his own oratorio, The Creation, was being performed, which is a musical rendition, of course, of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the universe. And he was old and of very ill health, and he was brought in among great honor in an armchair and set down to listen. And according to one account, the audience was very emotional as it was beginning and as it was playing because it's such an evocative piece. And at one point, they broke into spontaneous applause and a standing ovation when it came to the point of let there be light. And at that point, Haydn struggled to stand, motioned for silence, and kind of feebly pointed upward, saying, not from me. Everything comes from him. What a beautiful and resounding gesture, just a small pointing away from himself and up to heaven. Now he had been, as a young man, much like Mozart and Beethoven and others, a bit of a cad, kind of a, a womanizer, we would say. Perhaps he wasn't walking with the Lord, and we would feel pretty comfortable saying that, but apparently in his maturity, in his own old age, he found himself pointing away from himself and giving the glory that was being heaped on him instead to God. The story we see today in the scriptures is the opposite happening. Someone being given praise, overtly the praise due to a God and holding tight to it. And we see just what Jesus thinks of that. Now this is actually, you wouldn't know it perhaps by the, just seeing it in your Bible, but this is a, a very important segue. This is the end of the second section of the book of Acts. You remember back in uh, the, the, the eighth verse of the whole book, Acts 1.8, Jesus said before he ascended, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I told you way back then that that was the outline for the book of Acts. There are three sections. And this is the end, this weird, gross story about Herod is the end of section two. And we'll see why in a moment, why this is included here where it is. It's not perfectly in chronological order. It's therefore a reason. Last time we spoke a bit about who this Herod is. It can get a little fuzzy. There's five Herods in the New Testament. Let's just kind of recap and I'll tell you a little bit more. This is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who ordered the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Real bad guy. I, I don't think he was that great, but that's the name that, that he was called. This Herod Agrippa doesn't seem to have actually gone by the name Herod. Luke uses it to tie him back to those other Herods and to show that they are always as part of this seed of the serpent trying to thwart God's plan and, and the salvation of, of God reaching the nations. He grew up in Rome with every privilege, every advantage, literally childhood chums 
with Claudius and Caligula, both of whom would become emperors of Rome. The leaders of the basically the entire world from their perspective. Can you imagine the air of entitlement and narcissism that would be swirling around in that little fret pack? These guys all know that they are destined to be served, to be great, to be powerful, to be rich. Maybe, though, entitled is not quite the word for Agrippa, at least not the way we use it, because while he was sure that he would attain everything he ever wanted, he was willing to work for it. And we see that he, he does that, because when he looked at the, the world, and the Roman world, he saw where his, his grandfather, Herod the Great, had ruled, and he sees that that is no longer Herod territory. That's shrunk way down. Antipas has screwed up and lost a lot of different stuff. A lot of things have happened. And he says to himself, I am going to rebuild. It's like Pokemon Go, only with territories and provinces, right? You've got to catch all of them. Reassemble the entire kingdom of his grandfather and become Herod the even greater. He accomplishes that it's not enough for him. He began setting his sights now instead on Syria and north of Syria. Obviously, he's got his sights set on Phoenicia, as we see in this passage. And of course, this, none of this is done with, with military campaigns. That would be suicide. It's all done with handshakes and who you know and, and uh, getting in there and making slimy deals and all of that sort of thing. I had uh, Mimi begin the reading back at verse 1 because it really does factor into this story that it comes right after the account of Peter being imprisoned and miraculously released, rescued from his imprisonment. And, and the story begins in verse 1 that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, and of course he intended after the Passover to bring him out and make a big game of it, spectacle of it, and have him put to death as well. The James that was killed, of course, was one of the first disciples that followed Jesus, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Jesus walked by and said, follow me. They left their nets, their father, their boats, and followed him. He's now the first of the twelve to be martyred for his faith. Don't confuse him with James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, who is even now, here in verse 17, beginning to be a major character throughout the rest of the New Testament church. He sort of takes over in Jerusalem as Peter takes off because they're after him. So Herod begins to persecute. It's almost a revival of the persecution of the church that had come before and had sort of petered out. And it's not that he's insanely wicked and bloodthirsty like some of the other Herods. No, he's just pragmatic and a bit of a sociopath, and he doesn't care what he has to do to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And he looks at this, this whole world, and he says, okay, I need to keep the favor of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those high priests in the Sanhedrin. And he thinks, what did my granddad do, Herod the Great? Well, he expanded and renovated and beautified the temple until it was at least as beautiful as Solomon's temple had been, but that was done. So now instead of building up something they love, he says, I'll tear down something they hate. And what do they hate more than this Jesus movement that is spreading everywhere? So he begins with James, sets his sight on who knows how many of the disciples. He may have wanted to collect them all as well. But unlike the Sanhedrin, 
Herod does not need anyone's permission to put someone to death. In fact, remember, they go to Herod with Jesus and say, will you say the word so that we can put him to death? He could have done this quickly, in short order, just like his uncle Antipas, Herod Antipas. Remember, John the Baptist was there on a whim. He's like, yeah, chop his head off. I want to see another dance. There's no one holding him accountable in this way except God. We saw last time that his plans were thwarted as Peter is allowed to escape, which Mimi read for us. There's hijinks involving him being left at the door. It's kind of a fun and funny story. And then in the passage for today, takes a sharp left turn into the macabre with worms eating a guy. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So he's angry with the people of, of these two major cities, which are kind of the hub of what's called Phoenicia. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you look in the back of your Bible, there's a book called Maps, and you'll see the coast there has a little nub. That nub used to be an island. Alexander built a land bridge to it, and it kind of built up with sediment and stuff. Now it's, now it's attached. That's what we're talking about. Phoenicia had its own separate rule. It was its own Roman province, not under Herod's rule, not yet anyway. But he knew that whatever they did to make him mad, and we don't know what it was, he knew that they would have to come to him hat in hand if he threatened to cut them off because they were port cities. Lots of commodities coming in, lots of stuff going out, lots of trade, but not a lot of land to grow crops. And so if Herod were to enact a trade embargo against them, they would be sunk. And so he knew they'd come and beg for him to smile upon them once again. And oh, how Herod loved to have much made of him. Like all small men with great unearned power, he felt that the common people were way, way below him, less than insignificant. And yet simultaneously, he yearned for their praise and approval. And what they wanted was peace. And he was willing to offer it, but there would be a price. They would have to grovel. They would have to kiss the ring. They go through this guy, Blastus, which, by the way, can we acknowledge that Blastus is a cool name? Anybody here think you might have kids anytime soon? Name that kid Blastus. Blastus the Chamberlain. No relation to Wilt that we know of. Chamberlain, if both the English word and the Greek that it comes from, literally means the one over the bedroom. Sounds like kind of an insignificant situation, cleaning up clothes, right, making the bed. Not the case. Just like in ancient Persia, the cupbearer, who initially just bore the cup, slowly kind of evolved into one of the highest of the, uh, the king's kind of uh, right-hand man. He was a, a trusted advisor. In the same way, the chamberlain became a trusted advisor and someone who could even kind of deal on the king's behalf. And he was always keeping an eye open to make one of these deals to, to build up more for his boss, Herod. And so it was standard. If you needed something from Herod, you'd go to Blastus, you'd grease his palm, give him a bribe, and earn yourself an audience with Herod the even greater. That's what happened here. And on an appointed day, this was going to happen. Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration for them. Lucky them, am I right? Now this is one of these interesting situations where we have a, an account of this very event that Josephus, a Jewish historian, from this time, just shortly after this, all these things were put down, 
And he gives us the same events and adds little different details. And I think it's interesting to look at them. First of all, the appointed day was a festival in honor of Claudius Caesar, his, his boyhood buddy. A man who was already celebrated as a god, which had to have kind of irked Herod. Why can't I be a god too? Josephus tells us that when he came out in his royal robes, they weren't just any robes. These robes were made of silver, designed to sparkle in the sun, quote, so richly woven that when the sun shone, it reflected the light with such a luster as dazzled the eyes of the spectator and struck an awe upon him. This makes me think of when angels are said to have been like the sun, looking at them, they shine that brightly, that brilliantly. Herod wanted to look larger than life, maybe even supernatural or divine in this case. And the people were shouting, this is the voice of a god and not a man. Oh, they knew what he wanted to hear. They knew how to get on his good self. Perhaps Blastus Chamberlain had even told them in advance, listen, you want to get on his good side, all you got to do is tell him he's a god, not a man. He was an easy mark for flattery. But it was a fatal mistake for him to accept this praise. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was, and note the order, eaten by worms and died. <laughs> you indeed. First off, notice this is not just his time, right? Everybody, you know, will someday be eaten by worms and died, right? Now you hear that from, from nihilists. We're all worm food, but we'd hope it would be after we die. Am I right? Not in this case. He is eaten by worms and died. An angel smote him, an angel of the Lord. This is the second time in this chapter an angel comes and intervenes in the affairs of humans. You see, what Herod has done, he's, he's violated the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There, there shall be no idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this kind of a public sin, by this kind of a prominent figure, raises God's wrath quickly. It is a sin to have idols, and even greater sin to willingly become an idol. And in this, he, he commits a sin of commission, something that he does, accepting the kind of praise that heaps glory on him, glory that belongs to God, and a sin of omission by failing to rebuke them, and instead pass the glory up like Haydn to God instead. In fact, that's the one that's emphasized by the text. That's why the angel came, because he failed to do that. Compare this to what happened just two chapters ago. Peter enters Cornelius' house. He's met by Cornelius, who falls down at his feet and worshipped him. Verse 26, But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. Peter's not having it. Don't worship me. Don't imply that I'm a god. Paul will do the same thing later on when he's uh, worshipped as a god. But Herod eats it up. And then, fittingly, worms start to eat him up. It's the circle of life, really. But why is it that worms... Why the detail? Is it just because he's such a kind of infamous character? So like they tell us that Judas hung himself and then he kind of fell and exploded... Or is there something more to it? Well, first of all, I believe what we see here is a particularly humiliating and particularly human way for this so-called God to go. 
This would be how he was remembered. The last thing that ever happened. Not his beautiful shining robe like the sun, but rather his falling over, mortal, and being eaten by worms. Secondly, we see in God using worms to take down one of the greatest men of that day, that God can use the smallest, least significant things to bring low the greatest of men. He brought Pharaoh down with gnats, flies, locusts, and frogs. Gnats are tiny. God can do that. God shows that he is mighty. And finally, perhaps it's not a coincidence that it's roundworms that cause trichinosis, which was fairly common for those who ate pork in that day. And eating pork, of course, made you unclean in the eyes of those people that would have counted Herod as one of their own, the Herodians, who are a Jewish sect. And here, perhaps, is the implication that he was unclean and hypocritical. Josephus gives us some more details here that are interesting but not needed. He says this, The king did neither rebuke those who praised him, nor reject their impious flattery, but as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and beginning in a most violent manner, he looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. This is not a Christian apologist who's relating these things. This was a matter of, of public record and history. And if you think the owl is weird, it's not just because it rhymes with bowel. It, what was going on here is, during his imprisonment by Tiberius, the story was that he had looked up and seen an owl sitting on a rope and somehow interpreted it as an omen that he would soon be released and become king, both of which happened. But part of it was that when he saw the same thing again, it would mean he was about to die. And the fact that it seemingly happened that way doesn't mean there's truth to his superstition. Perhaps it only means that God has a bit of a twisted sense of humor in certain situations. Josephus tells us finally, and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifth, uh, 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. So, that's gross. What do we learn? I think what we see in this, ta in this passage is first and foremost, the dangers of pride personified in this man in his silver robe who would allow people to say that his voice is the voice of a god. We read a lot about this in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, we read that very famous passage, Pride cometh before... Uh, uh, uh. Pride cometh before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. But I know that you were just showing you recognize the Hebraic uh, kind of parallelism there, and that's why you said that. Matthew Henry says that this that happened. That the angel smote him with a sore disease just at that instant when he was strutting at the applauses of the people and adoring his own shadow. The higher we lift ourselves up, the further we have to fall. But more importantly, the higher we lift ourselves up, the more likely God is to go, oops, and knock us down. I think of one of my favorite poems uh, Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, uh, the writer of the poem, comes across in the midst of just desert stretching in every direction, this broken, toppled statue of a, a great king named Ozymandias. And you can read part of the inscription. 
which says, I am Ozymandias, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And you can imagine looking around like, what works? I don't see no works. All I see is a broken statue. Because of his pride, worms ate Herod. Five days is pretty quick, I guess, as far as things could have gone. But God doesn't always punish sin as swiftly as he does here. In fact, in most cases, pride might eat away at us, eating away at our souls for decades. And that doesn't mean we're luckier than Herod. In fact, to stay in that position of pride is so dangerous, it is it just as sure as Herod to place ourselves at odds with God, as an enemy of God. James says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, he opposes you. You're not going to win. This is the guy who was like, worms. If you're humble, he will give you grace. And when we look at this, who was involved, I think, is significant that he is talking to people who are from Tyre and Sidon because they've got some history with this. In Ezekiel 28, there was a king of Tyre who was in the same kind of headspace as Herod. We read these words. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you're but a man and no god. Though you make your heart like the heart of a god, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations." And they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. These men of Tyre should have known better. Maybe they did and they were setting up Herod because they didn't like him. Who knows? Or there's the more famous, more prominent story of Nebuchadnezzar that Mimi read for us in the Old Testament reading in which he looked over his domain and said, Oh, is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built, and are I not super-duper dope? That's the message, I think, says that. And God said, No, you will be humbled. You are, in just a moment, you're going to lose your mind, and you're going to, for seven years, you're going to think you're some kind of a, a piece of livestock, cattle, wandering around, eating grass, your hair's going to get all weird and feathered like it's the 80s, and your fingernails are going to get long like eagle talons. But notice that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't put to death. At the end of those seven years, he came to himself and repented of his pride. Not Herod. Herod's heart was so hard, he was not willing. Herod loved the praise of men more than anything. He'd earned the favor of the Jews. He basked in the favor of the Gentiles. But he cared not one whit about the favor of God. And that was his downfall. So there's the dangers of pride here, but I think also the dangers of flattery. What is flattery exactly? I've heard this cutesy little definition that I kind of like. It says gossip is saying about something, or rather gossip is saying about someone behind their back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying about someone to their face what you would never say behind their back. Now maybe that's a little too cut and dry, but I think it gets us there. And there, there are situations in which people might say, oh, that's flattery. You know, somebody says to an older woman, oh, what are you, about 29? Oh, do go on. And everyone's just having fun and being silly and playful. And everyone knows what's going on. This is harmless. But when flattery is meant to manipulate, when it, it, it's a grievous sin 
And it is a particular devious form of deception. And the scriptures have so much to say about it that I can't believe we talk about it so little in the church. And I certainly don't understand why we think of it as kind of a lesser, cute little sin. When you puff someone up, you don't do them any favors. In fact, according to Paul in his letter to Timothy, you may put them under the condemnation of the devil by puffing them up. That's the condemnation the devil experienced, not being condemned by the devil. Proverbs is full of things uh, along these lines as well, having to do with flattery. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Doesn't sound very harmless to me. Proverbs 29, 5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. Have you thought of that? Flattering someone is actually setting them up to take a fall. It's not kind. Not at all. Jude 16, in talking about false teachers, he, he has all this stuff to say about them, and he caps it with these words. They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and flatter others for their own advantage. And as Christians, we should not be easy marks for flattery. That means we're ready to be puffed up and have ourselves glorified. Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. We're, we're tested by praise coming our way. How do we receive it? Do we say, God gets all the glory, and in our hearts do we mean it, or are we just trying to look pious? Because that can be its own game. We don't want to be spoken of that highly, we remember Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. If you bring the truth, even when you bring it in love, there will be some who have something critical to say. Verse 24, we find that while Herod is dying, things are going well for the church, but the word of God increased and multiplied. See, Herod thought he held the power of life and death in his hand. He was like... Caesar Jr., right? I, he, he was a god in the flesh. But Peter's alive and well and in the wind. And Herod is cut down in his prime. And now we read that the word of God increased. So Herod was working his own plan. But God had been working an infinitely greater plan from before the foundation of the earth. And this whole time since the ascension of Jesus, about 10 years now, in, in the words of Jesus' parable, these seeds have been being sown everywhere. Sown, 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 watered, watered, watered. And now in the language of that parable, an increase comes 30, 60, 100 fold. God is in control even when it looks like things are moving in the wrong direction. The harder Pharaoh worked to persecute and oppress God's people, the more numerous they became. The more they increased. And the same is true of the church. Look back through history. Look around the globe today. The more the persecution comes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we see here that kind of wonderful reversal. It's a backwards, upside-down kingdom that Jesus established, where the first to last and the last is first and all the rest. In, in summing up this chapter, John Stott, the great uh, Anglican churchman, says, this chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Herod's whole purpose in life, his reason for getting up every morning, was twofold. 
He wanted essentially to increase his own glory and spread his own influence. Increase and spread. Increase and spread. But much like God said to the rich fool in Jesus' parable, the rich fool, he said to Herod, you fool, your very soul is required of you. And now everything he had is instantly someone else's. And even his own person is destined for a slow and steady decrease via worms. No more increase. No more increasing and spreading. Meanwhile, verse 24 says the gospel, the word of God, had began to increase and spread. God laughs to scorn those who mock him. And I believe this is why this passage is where it is here. Because it, it contrasts someone who tries by his own might to lift himself up and spread his own glory and influence, his own sphere, and how God takes that man who, who increases his own glory and humbles him and takes a humble church of persecuted Christians and he increases them and glorifies them and lifts them up. In that final verse of the chapter, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And phase three of the book of Acts has already now begun. It looked hopeless just a short time ago. But our God is sovereign. And when it looks hopeless, know that he has something in the works for his glory, not for ours. As the Virgin Mary said, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he still is doing this today. No human holds the church's fate in their hands. No ruler or despot or king controls the church and, and says it will continue to exist or not. They've tried. No judge, no group of nine judges holds the church and its fate in their hands. Remember the words of Simeon shortly after Mary said those things. He said, he, he said that as he blessed Jesus and his mother, he spoke to her saying, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And here by the order of Jesus, an angel rescues Peter from his cell and sends Herod to his grave. As Christians, we must not put our trust in ourselves or in kings and rulers or in political parties or in wealth or in anything else, only in Christ. And we must find comfort and meaning, not in the praise of others and the flattery that hits our ears just right, but only in Christ. Because there's only ever been one man who ever lived who deserved this praise. These are the words of a God. And if you were in our Sunday school class today, you know that you can't say, and not a man, because he's fully God and fully man. He didn't come in silver robes making us grovel and beg to feed his ego. He came sharing tables with sinners and tax collectors, touching lepers, saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you want peace, the Prince of Peace stands ready to grant it. We make peace with God. We find ourselves in a situation much like Tyre and Sidon saying, we're separated. And that's where all our sustenance comes from. But all it takes is to reach out and say to him, I want your peace. I want forgiveness. I don't deserve it. But because Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died a, a, a sinner's death on a cross, though he had no sin of his own, I'm asking for Christ's sake that I be forgiven 
and reconciled to you. He doesn't come in gaudy silver robes trying to scare up some image of divinity. He is divinity, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. He's not putting on airs. He truly is glory personified. And he doesn't put us off. He doesn't make us beg and plead and wonder if we will be spared. When we come to him and ask for peace, peace is what we find. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the humble way in which our king came. The opposite of Herod, who, who being in the very nature God, thought not equality God, with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the nature and the, and the role of a servant. We're so thankful. And Lord, with that in mind, how could we ever be puffed up in pride? How could we ever allow ourselves to be flattered? How could we ever seek to flatter others to manipulate them or to win their favor? Lord, may we live our lives standing up on wobbling legs and pointing to heaven, saying, not from me. Everything comes from him, from our God. In him we live and move and have our being. Lord, may that be our prayer, and may that be the, the song of our life. In your holy name we pray. Amen.